You are cordially invited to a long-expected party. Join us, my brother, my captain, my podcast, in our Twitter space on Saturday, April 2nd at 9 p.m. Greenwich Median Time or 4 p.m. Eastern Time as we reflect back on the magic that is the Fellowship of the Ring in the best way we know how, by watching it. Strangers from distant lands, friends of old, you have been summoned here to listen to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. The Lord of the Rings trilogy stands upon the brink of its 20-year anniversary. None can escape it. You will unite or you will fall. Each race is bound to this fate, this one doom. Will you look into the mirror? What will I see? Even the wisest cannot tell. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is The Mirror of Galadriel, our 16th Fellowship of the Ring episode. Frodo gets a glance of a possible future from the Elf Witch before the Fellowship sets out from her woods. But first, our spoiler warning. While the Ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will even... We will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. One piece of news up top that we want to mention is that The Lord of the Rings is officially for sale for a billion dollars, or at least the property is as owned by Middle Earth something or another. Emily, what's what's that about? So the book and, or sorry, not the book rights, the film rights to Lord of the Rings have been owned by, um, well, are owned by multiple stakeholders, but one of the larger uh, stakeholders in this is Middle Earth Enterprises. Um, and so the uh, films and, for example, something that I care very much about, Lord of the Rings Online, um, all license their um, ability to, to you know, adapt the the source material from Middle Earth Enterprises, um, the the larger kind of shell company that owns uh, Middle Earth Enterprises uh, announced the other day that um, they are going to be selling <laughs> their uh, stake in it, their share of it, um, and the starting price at the auction is a billion dollars, and it's expected to go for upwards of two billion dollars, um, and. Uh, I, I kind of laugh because it is an exorbitant amount of money, but it's also something that's going to uh, impact uh, well, a massive amount of what the legendarium looks like uh, beyond the books. So it is really something worth um, paying attention to. Yeah. Oh, thanks for that. And we will probably talk about this more as this news items develop. So uh, you may hear about this in other episodes of the podcast. As promised last time, Today will be part two of our discussion on Elvish cultures and history. Today we will be focusing on major Elven milestones during the Second and Third Ages. Last episode, we talked a bit about some of the major events of the First Age, namely the Fenorian Wars of being an incredibly ridiculous family, and the colonization of Middle-earth by the High Elves or the Noldor. Today, we're going to take a look at the aftermath of some of those First Age events. 
During the War of Wrath, which saw the Valar, the Elves, and the men of Numenor form an alliance to fight Morgoth, the easternmost part of Middle-earth, a region known as Beleriand, was sunk beneath the seas. I should point out here that this is different to the sinking of Numenor, and actually wasn't engineered by Eru Iluvatar at all, but rather by the Elves and Valar going full kaiju on Morgoth. With a good third of Middle-earth lost to time, the unity of the Anoldor effectively destroyed forever, the age of the elvish realms of Middle-earth began. And there were a lot of realms. There were Orifer's Woodland Realm, Lothlorien, Linden, Imladris or Rivendell, the Grey Havens, and lastly, Eregion. We're going to focus today on Eregion and Lothlorien, but that's only because those are the two we touch on the most in Lord of the Rings. In terms of political importance, both Imladris and Linden are not to be underrated. Eregion, also called Holland, spanned from the southeast of Eriador to the gates of Moria. Its capital city, Austin Evil, or Fortress of the Eldar, was considered the last great stronghold of the Noldor elves east of the Sundering Seas. Ruled over by Celebrimber, who, as we mention quite often, was the grandson of Feanor through his estranged father Curifin, Eregion became, like Tyrion and Amon before it, a place of great craftsmanship and artisanry. The elves of Eregion lived and tra- traded amicably with the dwarves of khazad and for many centuries modeled the height of harmonious living in Middle-earth. Yet, as it was with Feanor, the elves of Eregion sought to craft things beyond the ken of Arda, and they began to craft the Rings of Power. We've spoken about most of this already, so suffice it to say that Sauron showed up looking like a snack, and the elves got played real good. Celebrimber momentarily outsmarted Sauron, however, and secretly made three Rings of Power, which he gave to the High King of Linden, Gil-galad, Galadriel of Lothlorien, and Círdan the Shipwright. Once Sauron forged the One Ring, the elves of Eregion be- began to fortify against him, and they prepared to attack. Celebrimber fought boldly, though he was slain upon the steps of his smithy. Sauron, who knew powerful aesthetics when he saw them, was then said to have used Celebrimber's body as a banner while marching against the other elves. This is known as the War of the Elves and Sauron, and it brought about the destruction of Eregion. Man, that's fucking metal, Sauron. Way to yeah, go. it's a lot. <laughs> Meanwhile, on the other side of Moria, the, the Lothlorien played host to its own kingdom. At first ruled by Sylvan elves, elves who did not answer the call to join the Valar and Amman, Lothlorien was helmed by, for a time by King Amroth and Nimrodel, who, as Emily mentioned last week, was not his wife. After the War of the Elves and Sauron and the subsequent destruction of Oregion, many Noldor, that is, elves who did answer the call of the Valar, crossed the Misty Mountains to join their sylvan brethren. During this time of unity, the elves, under the High King Gilgalad, his herald Elrond, Elendil, High King of the Dunedain, his sons Anarion and Isildur, Orifor of the Woodland Realm, father to Thandriel and grandfather to Legolas, and Amdir of Lothlorien, the alliance of men and elves marched on Barathur, intending to besiege Sauron. And besiege him they did, though not without enormous cost to themselves. Gilgalad, Orifer, Amdir, Elendil, and Anarion were all lost in battle, and though Isildur managed to cut the one ring from Sauron's finger, there were, as we well know, some complications. 
Though Sauron was temporarily vanquished, the world grew dark and the elves and men retreated from one another. Back in Lothlorien, Galadriel and Celeborn took up the mantle of Lord and Lady, not King and Queen, and planted the seedlings of the Malorn trees of Linden, a story for another day, which grew into enormous golden trees, ultimately giving Lothlorien the epithet the Golden Wood. For a thousand years, Lothlorien prospered and time seemed not to pass at all. Galadriel and Celeborn gave birth to a daughter, Calabrian, who later married Elrond, now Lord of Rivendell. That is, in a fast-talking nutshell, how we got here. Frodo descends to a darkened sylvan grotto, while a fair phantom walks across the soft earth. There's a blink and you'll miss it Quentin Tarantino homage, and then we watch as Galadriel fills a silver carafe with water that flows from deep within a tree. Galadriel is creating her mirror for an enchanted Frodo. The mirror shows many things. Things that were, things that are, and some things that have not yet come to pass. Galadriel is seriously on some Web 3 shit with that if she thinks I'm going to trust anything with that big of a remit. Nevertheless, Frodo, who is most certainly not among the wisest of Middle-earth, steps forward to get his NFT ape. Galadriel watches with interest as Frodo prepares to go face down in the mirror, while Frodo looks outright terrified. Which, to be honest, is fair enough. Though his first visions are innocuous at first, Frodo suddenly sees the very worst of all possible realities. The Shire, burning and broken, overrun by orcs. And so, of course, Frodo gives a very British response to it all. Of its own accord, the ring starts to pull towards the mirror, and we hear Sauron's dark and terrible voice. But this little hobbit has strengthened him yet, and he manages to free himself of the yoke of Sauron's mental invasion. Galadriel, in a spectacular profile shot, turns to Frodo. I know what it is you saw. Again, Galadriel does some cool and normal mental colonialism to slander Boromir totally unprompted. Frodo, who so far has literally offered the ring to everyone but Boromir, now offers it to Galadriel. Seriously, who picked this guy for the don't give the ring to anybody but the cracks of Doom quest? Galadriel of course admits that she wants it because, and I cannot stress this enough, she really is just like that. Of a dark lord, you would have a queen! Not dark, but beautiful and terrible as the dawn! Treacherous as the sea! Stronger than the foundations of the earth! All shall not be understood! I didn't for you! I guess that meltdown was somehow a dub for Gladriel because she decides she's passed the test and can now pass into Valinor. What I would not do to be the border guard at the shores of Oman. 
This task is appointed to you, says Galadriel, and though I suspect it's meant to be a pep talk of sorts, it really does sound like she's coming to term with how insane the whole thing is. Even the smallest person can change the course of the future, continues Galadriel. Though again, I know she does not mention whether they can change it for good or for bad. Classic hedging. Meanwhile, it's big boy season in Isengard. Do you know how the orcs first came into being? What they don't tell you is this is just a normal conversation Christopher Lee was having with an extra on set. He really does have that Tory history professor talking about the Nazis while vaguely trying to affect disagreement energy. It is remarkable. Cut to a lot of violence, a lot of neck snapping, the outfitting of the Uruks, and Saruman issuing his commands to them. You do not know pain, you do not know fear. I don't know a goddamn thing, dude. Anyways, the Uruks are instructed to get one of halflings brought to Isengard alive and unspoiled. Yikes, yikes, yikes. Okay, back to the perfect music again, and then we see the Fellowship departing Lorien in boats. Now, they go down mighty Anduin to face what fate awaits them there. Say that five times faster. Gladriel doesn't send them empty-handed, though. To Frodo, she gives a small, glowing file. The Light of Eorendil. May it be a light for you in dark places, when all other lights go out. With a kiss to Frodo's head and a queenly wave as the boats row past, we say farewell to Lorien. Let's talk about magic. Nebulous a concept though it may be. We're going to talk about the mirror of Galadriel and the light of Arendil today, and it makes sense to discuss magic broadly before we talk about how, or even if, it applies to the Lord of the Rings. Quick disclaimer that probably isn't necessary, but how we will talk about magic in fiction is not absolute or comprehensive. Magic can exist in other forms and other genres besides fantasy, but we're going to focus in on it as it relates to other comparable hits like Star Wars, Harry Potter, A Song of Ice and Fire, or even Shakespeare. Now, not to get all Webster's Dictionary Defines Magic on you, but I think a simple starting definition can be abilities or char- abilities of characters or objects that are not natural or real as we would define it. They are supernatural and mystical, straining our imagination for something other than what we see and hear and breathe every day. Magic is a major staple of the fantasy and medieval of the fantasy genre and medieval fantasy, not only in creating fantastical worlds and peoples, but driving plot for good or ill. And how various authors and works deal with magic varies greatly. Some authors define strict, rigid magical systems, and others more opaque ones, inscrutable outside the confines of narrative. I don't think one is preferable to the other, it's just how it's used to advance theme and tone that ultimately matter. And well, for video games, a stricter magical system makes more sense for coding. Working magic into a plot can be tricky, however. Magical devices often drive the plot forward, but if lent lent on too heavily may result in less impactful stories. This is perhaps akin to Deus Ex Machina, where if magic suddenly resolves all your conflicts, then it dissolves the tension or lessens the character's growth along the way. 
Of course, I bring this back to George R.R. R. Martin, as there's a line in A Storm of Swords where the wildling Princess Dalla says to Jon Snow, sorcery is a sword without a hilt. There is no safe way to grasp it. I like that quote not only for what it means in story, but as a reflection of the peril of inserting magic into your narrative. Okay, so that's a lot of meandering before we get to The Lord of the Rings and how it handles magic broadly. In the books, while Sam and Frodo wander Lothlorien, Sam talks about how he wishes to see elven magic of some form while he is there, as if by magic, Galadriel shows up at that moment to show the two hobbits the mirror. She presses Sam with this quote, For this is what your folk would call magic, I believe, though I do not understand clearly what they mean. And they seem also to use the same word of the deceits of the enemy. But this, if you will, is the magic of Galadriel. Did you not say that you wish to see elf magic? I like that quote a lot, namely for the comparison it makes to the enemy, deceits of the enemy specifically, which magic in our real world is often a deception or sleight of hand. The deceit of the enemy can also be tied to the forging of the Ring of Power, for all of them were deceived, in Galadriel's own words. But ultimately, how Galadriel speaks of magic here feels like Arthur C. Clarke's adage about how any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. It's not really magic to the elves. These are skills and crafts they possess as a race of beings that are just not accessible to the other inhabitants of Middle-earth. And a lot of the magic we see is tied to elven crafts. The Mirror of Galadriel, the Light of Arendil, Frodo's elven cloak and his elven blade sting, etc. Even Arwen flooding the fords is played as her casting a spell. I'm so excited that you bring this up because I think you're totally right about like the the like earthly connection in, in a way of uh, the the magic of Lord of the Rings. And I think there is a lot more kind of visible magic in in the movies than in the books, but but there is magic aplenty in the books. Um and I think it's it I think for some people it might necessarily raise this question of, well, if Tolkien is such a devout Catholic, why is there so much magic in in The Lord of the Rings and in the Silmarillion? And I think it, you know, it is a worthwhile question. Um and and the answer ends up being something quite similar, which is that magic is something that is essentially preordained by like the rules of of Earth. Um it's not like the chaos magic of the Witcher. All of the magic in Middle Earth exists because God exists. So it's totally as you say. It's not like it's this uh, completely un like incomprehensible power to the elves. To them, it's really just something that they are gifted by, you know, a god who loved them. Um, and because they have that, it's it's no different to like being able to see or to hear or to smell. It's just this uh, power up, I guess, that they have. Um, and in and in that way, um, it really isn't. Uh, like the kind of spooky Harry Potter uh, magic that we see where it is this this almost incomprehensible thing. It is something quite natural, at least as natural as like gravity. Um, and and uh, on, you know, this question of like Tolkien and Catholicism and magic, I, I don't really have a huge amount extra to, to kind of proffer because, you know, while I think it's an interesting uh, discussion, it's not really something I have much expertise in. But I do want to do uh, something quite like corny and something that should make uh, all like grade school teachers cringe, which is read a lovely paragraph off of Wikipedia. Um, but again, I think the editors uh, who maintain this page do uh, some excellent work here in comedic juxtapositioning. The paragraph is this. Tolkien, a devout Catholic, had strict rules imposed by the ruling powers. 
angels who had assumed the raiment of the earth, for the use of magic by their servants. These included a general discouragement of magic in all but exceptional circumstances, and also prohibitions against use of magic to control others, to set the self up as a political power, or to create a world that violates the natural order. He did, however, allow his wizard character to entertain children with magical fireworks. <laughs> and I mean, that to me in a nutshell is basically the, the magic system of Lord of the Rings, which is, is this kind of magic of the everyday. And, 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 you know, yes, there is uh, like uh, telepathy and telekinesis and, uh, and foresight, magical foresight. But, but in reality, it, it is this magic that is so closely tethered to the like literal salt of the earth um, that it can really be used in its most spectacular form in something that in our world is just done with, you know, gunpowder and dye. I mean, I think that is one of the really haha magical things about this system in Middle Earth. Of course, from our reader or watcher point of view, there is a lot of magic elsewhere in The Lord of the Rings. Hell, this whole fucking thing is about magic rings. <laughs> and the powers of Gandalf and Saruman and the Witch King of Angmar check the magic box as well. I assume the Witch King of Angmar can also create a great fireworks show. I'm just assuming that's what <laughs> Tolkien was getting at. Okay, so all that preamble out of the way, let's talk about Galadriel's mirror in depth. The mirror isn't really a mirror, it's a basin in which water is poured and then images are formed for the viewer. There's got to be a wet, better word than viewer for that. Makes it seem like someone is streaming the mirror of Galadriel on Hulu. <laughs> As Galadriel summarizes for Frodo, the mirror will show things that were, things that are, and things that may yet come to pass. It may show that which the viewer desires, or it may show images unbidden. What it will show, even the wisest cannot tell. And we'll work through Frodo's, Frodo's visions right now. The first vision... The Fellowship looking at Frodo all worried-like. I actually like what is done here, as these scenes are from the Extended Edition as the group was entering Lothlorien. So in the Extended Edition, these visions function as things that were. In the, but in the Theatrical Edition, you can be a little looser with how you interpret it. The first time I saw it, I figured this was some moment down the line when people were turning against Frodo, whether not trusting him or in desiring the ring for their own. Next, we essentially see the scouring of the Shire, a late Return of the King chapter that was famously not adapted for these films. Today is not the day to litigate that, but this was Peter Jackson's way of referencing that film omission. In it, we see the Shire reduced to scorched earth, with orcs running things and the hobbits, including Frodo's companions, being shown in bondage, not the kinky kind. <laughs> As it plays for these series of films, these visions represent what would come to pass if Frodo were to fail in his mission, what it would look like if the Shire too were consumed by the shadow. It's a worst-case scenario. It's what Mary talks about in Fangorn, all that is green and good in the world. There won't be a Shire Pippin. Given how bleak this particular future is, I'm happy Frodo didn't go full Shinji Ikari on us and just cry for the next seven hours of film. <laughs> and I'm just going to cut here in here to say uh, in incredibly smart people terms, I'm literally frothing at the mouth to talk about the scouring of the Shire and uh, its omission from these films. Um, so please, 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 everybody go subscribe to Menu's Patreon like right now. Um, we absolutely must do these scenes. I am so hyped for it. The last vision is no vision at all. Well, it technically has vision because it's the eye. Sauron. 
Okay, sorry, that was the worst <laughs> joke ever. But yes, the water turns to fire, which, neat, in my opinion. And the vision gives way to the great eye, a black slit drowned in fiery oranges and reds. The voice of Sauron speaks through it, and the ring seems drawn towards the watcher in the water. At last, Frodo has to physically grab the ring and yank it away before he can be free from the mirror's pull. The vision of Sauron's eye is, at the simplest level, Sauron looking back at Frodo, searching for the ring, wondering what this realm is he is gazing upon. But it too can function as a vision of the future. If Frodo fails, there will only be Sauron, the shadow, the darkness. Last episode, we linked Galadriel and Sauron as two sides of the same coin, light and dark. I feel like there's a similar kinship between their seeing tools, the Palantir as used by a Sauron, and the Mirror of Galadriel. I'm also wondering if the blue coloration of Lothlorien, which we talked about last time, was in part driven by this scene so that when the eye appears in Lothlorien, it's altogether foreign in hue. Yeah, this is such, such, such a good call. Um, I don't really know if I have like a settled opinion on it necessarily, but I wonder if there's like something to be said about the like filmmaker's desire to draw a stark chromatic contrast between Lothlorien and Sauron versus like maybe letting the chromatic similarities impart like a sense of unease. I don't know if that makes sense, but like it's like, does Sauron need to be utterly different from our good guys to still be evil or is there like something to kind of be said for the similarities between sauron and our good guys and and you know like i'd I'd really probably argue that in some ways galadriel's reasons for for leaving amon and going east are less noble than sauron's and so would it not wouldn't there be some benefit to kind of drawing these contrasts and these similarities and, and almost saying you know just because uh well, it's actually a Sam quote in the book, uh, a fair face and fair speech may hide foul intentions. Um, and, you know, that is such a key theme of the books is that things can be beautiful and things can sound beautiful and still ultimately be evil. Um, and, you know, maybe there is some benefit to uh, keeping a kind of like aesthetic similarity between uh, Sauron and Galadriel or Sauron and, and all the other elves. And, you know, anyways, it's, it's, it's not something that I necessarily have like a hard and fast opinion on, but but you saying that has really got me thinking about like the, this kind of need and instinct to, to draw these really strong contrasts between the, the uh, you know, uh, the good guys and the bad guys and um does that maybe lose some sort of like analytic value for having it be such a stark binary so this is just going to be me thinking off the top of my head and i don't know if this is going to veer into agreeing or disagreeing with emily <laughs> by the end of it but i think i i'm a fan of this kind of working in two different directions i like lothlorien to be juxtaposed as different from Mordor, um, kind of like Lothlorien, all its energies is kind of focused inwards, like from the boundaries in towards insulation, whereas Mordor is kind of like, it's erupting like a volcano. It's kind nice. of spilling out over itself and spreading all over Middle Earth. So I like those two kind of to be presented as different, but then I like the similarities that are just drawn between the individuals of Galadriel and Sauron, which we're trying to highlight. And again, I'm not sure how much the film is actually trying to do this, or this is me spending 20 years of my life just thinking about the same nine hours of cinema over and over. But I think that's kind of the push and pull between the conflicting kind of triangle of imagery that you're trying to juggle there. 
Yeah. Well, cause I guess this also gets to like something that we're about to talk about, which is like the, the, the imagery of mirrors. Um, and, and I guess it's this question of like, when you look into a mirror, do you see something that looks like what you are? Or do you see like an inversion or a, like a, a, a perversion almost of, of what you really are? Um, and, and I guess I wonder like, is Sauron meant to be, uh, an inversion or perversion of the elves um, in that, like, there are some similarities there, but they've just been corrupted in, 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 you know, in various ways, or is it meant to be, um, you know, something entirely different and, and Sauron as a villain, as, as the enemy, as the bad guy really isn't holding up a, a mirror to, uh, you know, the inhabitants of middle earth, the inhabitants of Arda, the good guys. He's just something that is totally like kind of devoid from these like natural, I guess, reflections, um, yeah, yeah, no, but that is, that is such a good point as well about like, uh, about the kind of, uh, that, I mean, that, that imagery, you're right. Like the, the imagery of Mount Doom as being like the icon of, of Mordor and like, at, like, like Mordor quite literally erupting into the rest of the world. Like, I think you are totally right. That is a, that is a really good call and not something I think I necessarily would have clocked otherwise. Um, yeah, no, no, no that's good. That's got the like gears in my head turning. <laughs> Okay. Well, unfortunately, you got the gears in my head turning, and now I'm picturing Mordor as like the picture of Dorian Gray, and as uh, Lothlorien and Galadriel get more beautiful, Mordor just gets worse, but they're kind of linked together. Hell um, yeah. Hell but, yeah. That rocks. Yeah. No, I think, so this is kind of like, if you look at our pop culture landscape of 2022, I think we've gone not too far, but like, we put a lot of emphasis on relatable villains like, oh, if I can't relate to this villain, how will I care? And I'm thinking of like, you know, Killmonger and Thanos or Kylo Ren, just like those kind of villains, not like, I don't know, the card counter or something. But I think like sometimes it's okay for a bad guy to just, you know, be bad or evil. Mm. But I think in terms of thematically, I think Sauron is far more enriching if we're making him similar to our wizard and elfish or even our uh, men characters, um, seeing you know, what part of Denethor is similar to Sauron or what part of Aragorn is similar to Sauron or Galadriel or Elrond or you go on down the list. But it's like when it, evil doesn't usually just come from a black hole uh, from hell, you know, it's usually yeah. something that is part of our normal understanding of the world corrupted in some way. So I think thematically, it's always stronger if you see how the enemy is a reflection of yourself in some way. So with that, I do agree with you in full. I think that is the stronger thrust. It's it's interesting because um, there was this argument that a lot of folks were having on uh, varyingly uh, like Reddit and Twitter and whatever other internet cesspits there are. Um, but so, some writer basically said that like all of the villains in, in Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings are just like bad guys who are bad guys and there's not really any nuance or, or like shades of gray to them. And obviously all the fans were kicking off and being like, that's just horseshit. That's totally not true. Um, but but one of the things that I think is is well, it's actually something that we've touched on in, in previous episodes, but like Morgoth is the devil, right? Like he is this like bad, bad, bad guy. Um, and Sauron is to a lesser extent, uh, a bad guy. Well, not to a lesser extent as in to be like, he's not a bad guy. He is a bad guy, but like his reasons for being bad, um, are come from this place of like goodness corrupted. Um, and yes, like Morgoth's also come from goodness corrupted, but like his is, is more heavily corrupted because rather than like wanting to, to share in kind of the beauty of the world, he wants to like, co he covets it and wants to like possess it. Whereas Sauron is like just Mr. Efficiency. Um, and I kind of wonder if like in the films, um, 
there is this kind of flattening of what Sauron is into something that is very like cut and dry, you know, black and white, evil, bad guy, not really any secondary motivations. Um, and, and I guess like, I find that interesting because in some ways, um, and, and I've, I've literally just come around to this take, uh, as we were prepping for this episode, but like, I think Galadriel actually in the films gets a slightly more nuanced take on her goodness, um, than Sauron does on his badness. Um, and so it is interesting to me to, to, to kind of draw these parallels because I think, um, in some ways there is a potential for Galadriel to like, at least the films like, like imply that there is a potential for Galadriel to become Sauron. Um, and that is giving a, a far more like nuanced and almost like not, not, not unsympathetic look, but, but, uh, more like, uh, clear-eyed uh look at Galadriel than I think it does to to Sauron and and to his evilness and I, and I think it is just kind of interesting to to have these two together like in this one kind of nexus of Lothlorien this like one like stronghold safe zone really we've discussed the Palantir as a play on obvious fantasy tropes you know the trope of pondering orbs <laughs> and it does have a parallel to the mirror of Galadriel but the mirror, or looking glass, is a trope unto its own, such as from Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, or the magic mirror from Snow White. Or is even the little pool of water that Simba looks into in The Lion King count as a looking glass? Yeah, so <laughs> so I would say yes. Um, Hamlet, which is what The Lion King is based off of, has this like whole thing about mirrors in it thematically, and but it's like all about like incest. Well, and in, so it is incest, but it's not really incest. But it's Gertrude coming. Gertrude is the queen, and Hamlet's mother coming to terms with her relationship with Claudius, who is uh, Hamlet's uncle, uh, the the brother of her late husband, who also murdered her husband. Um, and and Hamlet is like literally holding up a mirror to his mother and asking her to like finally look clear eyed at herself and see what it is that she's become and what it is that she's doing. And I don't really think that like Simba is looking into the, uh, the, the, <laughs> the pond and seeing incest there, but you know, um, I like the, I like the, the argument that you're making here. So I'm going to be like, yes, go for it. <laughs> Even in more modern art, we see the allure of the mirror as a supernatural element, say a name in front Say the name Candyman in front of it and he will eventually appear, or take the red pill and figure out what is the Matrix. I hear even that turf-written wizard book has its own mm. mirror, the Mirror of Erised. And there's a whole show, Black Mirror, which I haven't watched, which posits that the television screen itself is supernatural. Oh my god, okay, so uh, here's an insight into what uh, just a tremendous fucking dumbass I am. Um, that show has been around for ages now, for years. Like, I feel like it's been around since time immemorial. Um, it was only like a month ago <laughs> that I clocked the Black Mirror was meant to be <laughs> the reflection of a TV screen. I was like, oh, that's just like a weird collection of edgy words that they've thrown together, and really didn't realize that it was ugh, one of these things, man, where I like... Oh, hear the things that I think and say aloud. And I'm like, how have I survived this long? <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> also, given Galadriel's characterization of being awesome and powerful and that she knows she's awesome and powerful, I think of the Greek myth of Narcissus, who stared into the water wondering who the beautiful person staring back at him was. 
Galadriel is self-declared as the fairest and wisest of all beings, <laughs> so I am tickled that her eponymous relic is itself a mirror. What a vain-ass elf. Yeah, absolutely obliterate her. Tear her down. So we're going to talk next about Galadriel being offered the ring by Frodo. And just a little disclaimer from me, a lot of this is me grappling with the films as I saw them with no context from the books or the broader legendarium. There's a lot to Galadriel's character we will talk about, but these musings still take root in my in me grappling only with the text of this film, and my only other knowledge of Middle-earth were the two hours of film preceding the scene. Frodo, after seeing a vision of a future that may yet be, offers the ring to Galadriel, and admittedly, she is tempted by it. She seems to grow taller, her hand reaches out, and she speaks plainly of her heart's desire to Frodo. Um, and I, I don't know much about this, but I think uh, Emily covered it last week, is that Galadriel actually wanted to shape Middle-earth to a world not unlike Valinor. Emily, is that true? Yeah, so so Galadriel kind of has this like two-pronged thing going where like her first and most significant motivation is that um she she wants to rule a realm of her own. Um and and Middle-earth is uh in her mind Terra Nullius um and therefore her opportunity to to do that. Um but once she uh crosses the Helgaraxa and is officially exiled from Valinor, um she or from Amon rather, um she starts to to basically realize how bad she fucked up um and starts to long for and miss the beauty of Amon. Um and so as her and her her husband uh Caliborn um move through the, the the various um elvish settlements that they uh live in uh, inhabit throughout their kind of long journey eastward until they settle at Lothlorien. Gladriel's kind of chasing this high of like recreating Amon. Um, she gets to Lothlorien. Uh, well, she and Celeborn get to Lothlorien. After some time, they take up like the 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 throne, uh, the non-throne throne, um, and this is really her chance to to try and replicate the beauty of Amon. Um, and and I should note this is actually like a, a common uh, uh, pursuit among the elves who who leave uh, Amon um, in the the courts of Gondolin, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. They even make uh, replicas of the the two trees of Valinor, Talperion and Lorelin. Um, in uh, in Rivendell, there are a lot of like aesthetic uh, references uh, to to Valinor, um, even though Elrond himself has not exactly got a huge amount of experience with Amon. Uh, like things like the Hall of Fire are, are direct references. Um, so it's not to say that like Galadriel is particularly unique in this pursuit, but it is something that is is kind of like her her guilt complex but also her desire to like do something good for the world uh coming out in full god damn they're all colonizers yeah honestly we've talked at length about galadriel as possibly an anti-sauron opposite but equal of sorts galadriel makes my argument for me here as she specifically imagines herself on the throne in place of sauron and we get one of the story's most memorable moments visually the in place of a dark lord you'd have a queen not dark but beautiful and terrible as the dawn a monologue that launched a thousand girl bosses <laughs> i mean i kid of course but i do see a lot of half serious au or tweet jokes about how awesome galadriel is in this moment and trust me i get the desire to be domed by kate blanchett <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, word. Um, I also just want to kind of flag here and we'll come back to it in uh, 50 to 100 episodes. But um, this like desire to be a queen uh, is something that's really significant for a lot of uh, Tolkien's women and, and whether uh, inadvertently or not, um, this is uh, one of the pure expressions for uh, the, the women of the legendarium uh, like one of the pure expressions of their kind of powerlessness um, and their desire to uh, improve beyond like whether their class station or their station as imposed by gender. Uh, so I want to flag this here because it's significant that Gladriel, who is the white lady of Lothlorien, uh, raises this as something of a desire of hers because a different white lady uh, will, and I realize that sounds insane if you don't have the context of white lady is one of uh, <laughs> Tolkien's like epithets for like uh, women who are incredibly beautiful and like the Eldar. Uh, a different white lady will also express a similar desire uh, much later. The first thing I want to talk about is the word choice of terrible, which is the same thing Gandalf says back in our Riddles in the Dark episode. I would use this ring from a desire to do good, but through me, it would wield a power too great and terrible to imagine. I think this effectively links Gandalf and Galadriel, not only just as powerful beings, but as ring bearers themselves, as they keep two of the three elvish rings between them. It also speaks to these two characters, Galadriel and Gandalf, being on the same wavelength a bit, and understanding that no matter what they desire, the will of the ring would win out in the end and enthrall them to Sauron, if not his person, then at least his creed. This could also ultimately speak to why they found relief in Galadriel's presence in Lothlorien, ultimately. Well, sorry, Boromir. They lost Gandalf, but luckily they could mourn with a Gandalf-like figure around. Yes, and I'm really excited about um, this this discussion about uh, a terror um, because uh, for anybody who doesn't follow me on Twitter and isn't uh, tracking my movements uh, like a GPS system, I, I just spent um, a long weekend in Paris um, and uh, had lots of fun bitching about the fact that the French Revolution has been essentially like uh, wiped from public history and public memory. Um, and one of the reasons why I get uh, like sort of uptight about this is because there's like a really important political utility to the word terror. Um, and I'm going to kind of back this up and slow myself down to say that um, two words that are often used interchangeably are terror and horror or like terrible and horrible. Um, and, you know, in, in like common usage, it's totally fine and reasonable to, to do that because they, they evoke the same kind of sentiment. Um, they do actually have very different, very distinct like definitions. So, in, in in short, like the kind of summation of their difference is terror is a word that like refers to possibility of something bad or something extreme, whereas horror refers to the reality of something bad or something extreme. Um, terrible, unlike horrible, is a modifier. So something can be terribly good or terribly bad. And that means extremely good or extremely bad. Um, horrible just means there's kind of a visceral component to it. And it has a very kind of static uh, meaning and like evocation. But, um, and to circle back to this French Revolution chat and, and the chat about uh, uh, the political utility of the word terror and terrible, um, there is no moment in history where the term terror, um, well, actually, I should say <laughs> before the war on terror, uh, has as much political pull and, and relevance as in the French Revolution. Um, and and there is, of course, a, a period of time um, during the French Revolution called the terror, which is... Uh, 
well, there are actually a couple different terrors, but the, the terror that we tend to think about is when uh, the guillotine was pumping at full speed and uh, enemies of the French Republican state were executed for treason. Uh, lots of priests, for example, were drowned in uh, holy water, uh, which is a hell of an execution. Um, and it is generally seen as like the fault of a uh, uh, a one Maximilien Robespierre, uh, who is my favorite. Um, but Robespierre is also like one of the primary theorists of like terror in a political sense. Um, and I would be a fucking nightmare at summarizing it any better than he can. So I'm going to read here. Um, and this is because I got outclassed in the last episode where you quoted Nietzsche. Um, so I am now trying desperately to claw my way back into sounding remotely clever. So here's, here's me quoting Robespierre shamelessly. If the spring of popular government in time of peace is virtue, the springs of popular government in revolution are at once virtue and terror. Virtue, without which terror is fatal. Terror, without which virtue is powerless. Terror is nothing other than justice, prompt, severe, inflexible. It is, therefore, an emanation of virtue. It is not so much a special principle as it is a consequence of the general principle of democracy applied to our country's most urgent needs. So essentially, this is an argument saying that terror is not inherently evil. It is, uh, it is a word that implies uh, like a, a modification to the extremes of something. Um, it is a word that implies uh, a certain like evocation of, uh, of emotional and psychological responses. But it, on the whole, terror is not something that should be immediately shunned. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure this this little screed here is going to get me put on a whole bunch of lists. Um, but it is interesting that Gladriel uses this uh, term terror and terrible uh, to describe herself as a queen um, and, and what she would do as a power, because it doesn't necessarily mean that she is evil. It does not necessarily mean that her desire for power makes her evil. It just says that it's taking it to an extreme of, of sorts. And this is also what Gandalf is getting at. Gandalf talks about, you know, he would do terrible things, great but terrible things. He would do things that are theoretically good, but they would go to such an incredible extreme that at least as Tolkien sees it, it would be a problem. Uh, the counter argument here is, of course, Robespierre, who says that, you know, maybe certain extreme, extremes aren't necessarily a problem. It depends on their uh, relationship to like virtue or morality or like political goodness. Um, but I just wanted to flag that here because I do think it is one of these interesting kind of sub-conversations. It's always bubbling beneath the surface of these books and films. Yeah. Um, by the way, you're already probably on a couple lists since you are podcasting <laughs> with a brown man in a post-9-11 oh, world, so I oh would not God, worry yeah. about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, terrible as a modifier, um, it actually makes me think about The Simpsons. Um, there is maybe one of the more poorly aged classic Simpsons episodes, Homer Badman, where he is accused of sexual assault. And then the people picketing outside his house have the chant, two, four, six, eight, Homer's crime is really great. Great <laughs> meaning large or immense. We mean it in the pejorative sense, um, which is basically what they're doing with terrible here. It's not really talking about horror, like you say, but more like the degree to which what will be done will be done. Um, so. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we were able to wrap up 9-11 and The Simpsons, all of this one line from Galadriel. This is... This is peak podcasting. <laughs> oh, man, if I could get uh, what Jake Lloyd to say, now this is podcasting to drop right here. That would be great. <laughs> be at peace, Jake Lloyd. The world was too rough to you. <laughs> the effect we see here is interesting. It's not quite from the text, though it might be an exaggeration or extrapolation of it. 
And Jackson has n- never really spoken about it, though it's hard not to come up with interpretations of what Galadriel looks like in this moment. This is Galadriel unleashed, perhaps, if she bent all her power, including her own magic ring, towards a singular purpose. At least thrice I have described the elves using the phrase, luminous beings are we, not this crude matter, and I feel like this scene is where I got that notion. There is some undying light, something eternal, that our feeble minds can't wrap our heads around, and the appearance of elves to man is just for our benefit. I know this isn't quite true, but again, this is just me in my own head. Or maybe Dark Galadriel is what she would be like if she did acquire the One Ring. The most interesting flourish for me is that Galadriel is not shown in her elvish robes, but in armor with a breastplate. My own reading here is that to take the ring is inherently a choice of conquest. It and war are inseparable. It's what gives Sauron staying power. Galadriel will also go beast mode like this in the last Hobbit film, pretty much just for action scene purposes. I don't want to debate that yet, but instead of some symbolic Rubik's Cube like we have in Fellowship of the Ring, there it just plays like you have a boosted status in a video game. Mario with a star, the Witcher taking his potion, or Solid Snake injecting himself with nanomachines. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I have uh, no equal comparisons like that. I, all I can say is that I think this scene bangs. Um, and this is maybe one of the few times I'm actually going to say this in the course of this podcast, but I think this is way better than the book version. Um, like, you know, I, I respect J.R.R. Tolkien t- to varying degrees. Um, I love the books, obviously. I love the writing. But, like, this is just so much, like, tighter, and it is, it's so much more, like, immediately evocative. It gets the tone right. It gets the delivery right. Um, and I think, like, I especially like it to to circle back to the girl boss shit. And I think you are right to be like, this does launch a million girl boss boring wars or whatever. But like, I like that it's really overt and that it doesn't hide from like Galadriel being batshit crazy feral. Because like, I feel like you really rarely get to see good women being feral and slightly insane and admitting that they are kind of power hungry and they're kind of uh, completely fucking depraved. Um, and you know, it's not to say that I like think that like, oh, women characters are good when they're completely fucking depraved, but like, I think there is kind of an element of that where I'm like, okay, good. Like essentially we're now treating the women characters like, like the men characters. And that is interesting and exciting. Um, but I also think there's like an element of like emotional, like feralness involved that you also don't really often get to see. Um, certainly not without women immediately going and like shooting things up or doing things that are like immediately violent like Gladriel has this moment of her outburst where she behaves like a total weirdo and probably admits more about herself than she wants to but then she goes back to being on the good team and that's really it and there's no like necessity for her to be actively violent or whatever and so I do I do quite like it and I think it plays well in the movies in the end Galadriel relents and turns turns down the offer for the ring not unlike her beautiful and terrible speech Her rejection has also become one of the most memorable bits of dialogue to emerge from these films, though it's also in the books. I will diminish and go into the West and remain Galadriel is one of the lines that I feel reflects the melancholy or the bittersweet of the saga, which Emmett alluded to a couple episodes back. Galadriel is making the good or heroic decision here. She's not usurping the ring of power from Frodo. She will aid him on her quest to the extent she can and has rejected temptation which could destroy her. But for all that, it means giving up her own ambitions, or any hope to reside forever in Middle-earth or the woods of Lothlorien. 
If Sauron's ring is destroyed, then the three elven rings will lose power, and the elves will be resigned to head to the west. It's a sorrowful decision. I guess for us, you, me, Emily, all us mortal men doomed to die, all we can hope for in life is to diminish with grace. Would much rather have that than a scouring at the end of our days, if you catch my meaning. I will absolutely not be diminishing with grace. I am going to start getting Botox when I turn 25, and by the time I hit 60, I will have fully replaced my blood with like the blood of the youths, courtesy of Peter Thiel. Diminishing gracefully? I think the fuck not. And with that, Emily delivered 100 <laughs> psychic damage on when she turns 25, <laughs> I say as a 37-year-old over here, so... <laughs> All right, Grandma, time for bed. Or I guess Grandpa (laughs) is what you would say say to me. We're already losing you. (laughs) We get our last cut back to Isengard in this film. Gotta make the most out of that Christopher Lee casting. But most of all, Saruman is one of our stand-ins for the enemy, and he's going to take up the big bad role for the next film, so we want to set him up for the two towers here while, while, while we all take a breath, while also, of course, setting up this film's climax. The establishing long shot here of Isengard in grays and pale blues with black plumes smoking from the caverns is pretty much how we will see Isengard in the two towers. Saruman is giving a lecture on the history of the orcs to Lurts, head boy for House Urukai. <laughs> they were elves once, taken by the dark powers, is about as cliff notesy as it gets, but serves the pur- purpose for this story. Lurtz has to stand there and listen to the story of his own people being ruined and destroyed, just like every marginalized kid in the U.S. educational system. As for the history of orcs, we will circle back to that more in detail during our Two Towers coverage. Saruman claims he has perfected the orc, though, perhaps as a mini-fuck-you to Sauron. Look what I can do, you big old jerk. I can make even better warriors than you. And to his credit, Saruman's forces do kill more Fellowship members than Sauron. We see the arming and armoring of the Uruks and Mass. This is pretty much how we will see them through the two towers. Broad armor, thick shields, and pikes are cudgel-like weapons for the most part, though Lurtz at least gets a bow and arrow. Notably, Saruman's troops are being branded with the white hand on their person, on their armor, on their weapons. It does not get an explicit call-out here, but will be important imagery heading into the two towers and the Rohan plot. Saruman then gives a rally speech to the boys, promising them Manflesh will be back on the menu if they do as their bid. Saruman has further instruction to Lurtz. Bring back the halflings unspoiled, but the rest are expendable. This will lead to inner strife amongst the orc factions in the two towers. And I just want to flag here, and we will inevitably come back to it, um, but I had a kind of meltdown um, on Twitter a few weeks ago now about like the, the fact or of sentience and the debate over sentience, the sentience of the orcs. Um, And I think, um, you know, we have this like ethical and moral quandary in the orcs in in, uh, Tolkien's legendarium in that um, they are either inherently evil from birth um, or they are uh, trained to be evil and have taken it up as like an ideological crusade of their own. Um, And if they are evil from birth, then uh, it's a little weird that 
um, that we treat them the way that they that we do and that we like allow them to have like conversations with one, one another in a degree of like free will because surely if they're evil from birth then that free will isn't really there um or if uh they are not evil from birth and are like um specifically ideological about it then surely it is even weirder that like our good guys kind of just mow them down and there's never any chat necessarily about like a deprogramming or like a like a denazification essentially um that is like heavy chat but um this fact of of the like inner strife, the like faction fighting um, between the orcs and the two towers, and um, really raises this question of like sentience and the the like moral issue of of the orcs and how Tolkien portrays them, and then how Peter Jackson later portrays them. Um, it's not something that we can like do here, but it's something that we're gonna come back to. I hope um, at the start of Two Towers. So I just want to like raise that right now. Prepare thyself. Yeah, a, no, it's a it's it's a very interesting question. It's. This is a little bit cringe, but it's not unlike what Solo did to the Star Wars mythology about droids. Yep, um, exactly. Because all of a sudden you're questioning every action that took place before. And I guess being a kid watching Star Wars, a lot of it is just like, oh, these robots are just another form of sentience people can take. But, you know, as a kid, I'm not realizing that it's discrimination that, you know, the most Isley bartender is like, we don't serve <laughs> their kind here and all. Like, you don't think about it that hard. And I think, you know, part of it is that original trilogy is a lot more like, I don't know, basic in its storytelling. Like, yeah. it's basically putting a space fantasy wrapping on a very traditional kind of storytelling. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, trying to come up with like a grand unifying moral theory about the orcs, um, I think is really fascinating. Of course, you know, your enemy, George R. R. Martin, um, <laughs> has, you know, pointed the question about did Aragorn pursue a policy of orc genocide following the defeat of Sauron following, you know, his fall at the Battle of the Black Gate. Um, and that's an interesting question because it really rests upon, you know, what are the orcs in terms of moral standing um, yeah. and, and in terms of free will, as you point out. Um, so it's fascinating. Even the Lord of the Rings Shadows of War and Shadows of Mordor game, um, they invented a really cool video game system where you're kind of like a wraith, you're, but like a good wraith, not like a Nazgul. And you can actually enthrall orcs to your command. Um, and then there was a lot of discourse on Twitter and elsewhere about mm -hmm. But are you violating their free will? Are you making like what exactly is the moral implications of this cool ass video game system in terms of the context of narrative? Um, something I haven't myself really unraveled in a satisfying way personally, but I also don't think about the orcs as much as I think about how hot Kate Blanchett is. So maybe that's my fault. Um, <laughs> <sighs> all right. Where were we? Um, <laughs> <laughs> the the column of Uruk troops file out of Isengard and begin the jog to film's end. The movie the movie going audience now expects the Uruk ambush, creating a ticking time bomb scenario as the Fellowship heads down the river. The last bit in our story analysis section is the Light of Urendil, also called the File of Galadriel. It is the only one of Galadriel's gifts to get explicit focus in the th theatrical edition of this film. It will only resurface in the films for the Shelob portion uh, in The Return of the King, though it does get more usage in the books themselves. I'm sure we'll talk about it as we get to those parts in the books. I went on quite a bit about the mirror scene and Galadriel herself, but I want to circle back to the very end of that after the diminish into the West line. Frodo says he cannot do this task alone, and Galadriel, to her credit, doesn't really sugarcoat the response. Your task demands you be alone, and if you can't do it, no one will. 
One line I glossed over after Frodo saw the eye. Galadriel tells Frodo that the fellowship is already breaking and says he will try to take the ring. You know of whom I speak. Both that line and the ones to end the scene about being alone are not delivered as traditional dialogue from the actors' mouths. Instead, it's played as a conversation in their minds, telepathy for lack of a better way to say it. It's a continuation to how Galadriel heralded Frodo's arrival within her borders and how she was talking to the Fellowship on multiple levels when they were greeted by her and Celeborn. There are a couple takeaways from this dual planing of the dialogue. First, it creates a sense that Galadriel exists outside of time and space in the story, as one of the elder beings still kicking. She's not bound to this physical world in the same way others are. Secondly, it's almost as if Galadriel is talking to us, the audience. Her gaze has pierced through the fourth wall to tell us what is going to happen. Frodo will have to go alone, in a way, and Boromir will try to take the ring. I don't think the film is trying to be meta or anything like that, but if you want to speak to the powers of Galadriel, this is kind of a fun way to do it. And a film invention, I think, but one I, the adaptation apologist, am mostly good with. They are building tension for the Boromir scenes at the end, and they want to have want you to have that dread when you see Boromir shuddering on the Great River, or when you realize he and Frodo are off somewhere alone. I need like a like a sound effect where it's just like me shrieking in the distance, like properly fucking going out at Nazgul style. And um, so I think like I think you're right. Like I think like it is basically a fine change. Um, but I guess one of the problems for me is that like. The, the magic of the elves that we talk about and like their ability to foresee things and to, to have certain uh, like preternatural impacts on the world around them is played in the books, not as something that is always good. And in some ways, it is kind of a point of like sadness and sorrow for them because they are so like inherently chained to the earth. There is this kind of like sting of, you know, we can't go beyond the the parameters, the, the confines of the earth. We 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 have free will to an extent, but how much free will is there really when um all of our actions are in one way or another limited by by the confines of of Arda and what has been allowed by um Eru Luvatar. And obviously for the more moral of the elves, this isn't really necessarily a huge problem because they're on the side of of God, um, and so they don't need to think too hard about it. But there is this kind of sense that like they are limited in some ways, um, and um, in in the ways that they are limited, in the ways that they can foresee things, it is tragic because they know that they are ultimately powerless against this wider kind of force in the earth. Um, that element, I think, gets kind of stripped away in how the the magic of the elves is portrayed um, in in the films, and I think especially here because you know it raises the question: if Galadriel is so certain that Boromir is going to be the one to flip, if she is so certain that he is going to be the one to put them at all at risk, why doesn't she intervene? And rather than it being as it is in the books, kind of this moment of there is a there is an intention to intervene, there is a desire to intervene, but it is an impossibility because of how the rules of the wor- world as set out by God work. In here, it's a bit more. She she can see it all, but she decides not to intervene because she kind of places herself above and beyond it, and that I think raises this moral question of like, what the fuck are you doing, Gladriel? That isn't necessarily there in in the books. And um, I think you are right though, like in a narrative sense, it is really really good for 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 building up what is going to happen to Bormir and for raising the stakes. But it is just one of these things that I want to flag because I think it is really an interesting kind of uh, change and like a, a quite revealing in some ways. 
Yeah, no, I, I actually kind of agree with all of that. Um, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think trying to come up with a synthesis of how like me and you both approach these films or, you know, this set of mythology, I think a lot of it is since, you know, my like ground zero is these films and the films don't really speak to Eru Levitar or, you know, like a greater God, even though I know that's very much there informing Tolkien and the world and all that kind of stuff. Um, I don't, I don't think about like in terms of like predestination or as a God existing in this world, like my analysis of middle earth is agnostic, I guess, Um, which is how the film's presented. And I'm not saying it's I'm right or wrong. It's just, um, I am not able to make the very smart leaps and uh, conclusions you are just because that's like a whole black hole in my understanding of this world as depicted in the films, of course. And I guess it is, it's kind of like a product of the time in a way, because like the 1990s are kind of, you know, at the same time that there is this like cultural ups- upswing of like the evangelical right in the Anglophonic world. Um, there is also this kind of sense that like the pop culture, the high culture is becoming more like agnostic, if not atheist, then certainly agnostic or like uh, non-religious. And I think that is definitely how it plays out in these films. I think you're spot on with that. Yeah. And I'm going to say, um, even though I kind of praised this, I guess, in the way I presented it, I... I think it's good in the sense that I think it gives Galadriel, like I said, she kind of exists out of time and space. And I like what that does for her, Mm. you know, aura in these films specifically. But I do agree with you that if you actually think about it for more than a second, (laughs) if she knows Boromir is going to take the ring, why isn't she doing anything about it? Can she like cast a spell on his little boat and it kind of like goes down a different tributary and winds up elsewhere, you know, down the Entwash and eventually to Gondor? Um, keep him away from Frodo. I don't know what you're doing, lady. Um, <laughs> when Galadriel delivers this line, this task was appointed to you, Frodo Baggins, and if you do not find a way, no one will. Her face is grim, stoic. It's not some inspirational wisdom she is imparting to him. But I love how this line is called back in Return of the King, after Frodo escapes Shelob and Gollum and collapses on the mountain pass to Kirith Ungol. Frodo is all of a sudden transported to Lothlorien for the briefest of moments, and the Lady Lady Galadriel is there to pick him up. This same exact narration plays there, with again no lips moving, but there is just the biggest smile on Kate's face that helps Frodo back to his feet. Now, I'm just grasping at straws, but that scene in Return of the King reminds me a bit of the ending of this film, where Frodo hears Gandalf's voice in his head at a moment when he's not sure if he can still go on. Another link between Galadriel and Gandalf. Yeah, you are right on that. And I think like we've kind of gotten into like the two different forms of wisdom between Gandalf and Galadriel. But I also just want to point out, because I'm like a spiteful little bitch, um, that Galadriel is straight up wrong in saying this. Um. Frodo, like, I, like I don't want to take away from the enormity of what Frodo does, and and like the book and the film both are very clear about the fact that like nobody but Frodo could have gotten as far as Frodo did, but Frodo doesn't accomplish it alone. I don't like this like framing that says that Frodo didn't accomplish it at all because I think that's untrue. But Frodo didn't accomplish it alone. Sam carried him up the mountain. It was his mercy frodo's mercy that he showed to Gollum in bringing them along so far that ultimately literally gets the ring across the finishing line it is totally a group effort there um and i think galadriel like this is this line is kind of like indicative of galadriel's kind of short-sightedness and and also her like narcissism in a sense because she fails to see that this is like 
maybe in a sense only only Frodo can carry the ring, but but like there are literally quite literally other people who carry him, and the fact that she misses that is bad. And I think it would have been a far better pep talk if she had said, "Look around you. Look at all of the people who are already willing to lay down their lives on your behalf. Look at look at your friends. Look at the people who love you. You do not have to do this alone." I think that would have been a far better thing for her to have said. That would have been a like a, a more um uh, like successful kind of leadership thing um, to go back to me complaining about her and Aragorn and their bad leadership styles. And the fact that she doesn't is, I think, quite revealing about her character. Yeah, Galadriel, I want to hear more about Sam. Frodo would not have gotten very far without him. (laughs) We've talked in depth about how this film and series does a lot to center eyes, hands, and faces in its filming, which makes sense for a story based on magic rings and a great eye. But it feels like those choices all climax at the Mirror of Galadriel, which is all hands and eyes and fingers. The camera stays tight on both Frodo and Galadriel throughout, while the ring taking center stage a couple times. This may not be a cinematography thing, but since we are on the topic of eyes, I want to talk really quickly about eye level, which is a runner for a lot of the Hobbit interactions. When Galadriel finishes with even the smallest person can change the course of the future, she bends down so as not to tower over Frodo in what can be read as a sign of respect and entrusting him to his task. We've seen something similar once, at the Council, when Aragorn pledges his sword to Frodo on his quest. Faramir will also do this at the end of the Two Towers. After being the Hobbit's jailer for much of the movie, he, when he finally decides to let Frodo go, he gets down on one knee and speaks to Frodo eye to eye. This is all building to the emotional climax of the trilogy when everyone dips their head in banners to the hobbits on Aragorn's coronation day. I don't want to be reductive or simplistic, but a lot of these films really boil down to the little guy facing down and overcoming gargantuan obstacles, a David vs. Goliath story in its own right. When we talk about height difference or eye level in these films, it's for the purposes of how it supports the themes and story here. It sets up a visual marker for those who show respect and reverence for the hobbits, which is why I track these things. And I have nothing really particularly clever or interesting to add to this, except for that there's a meme where it's like how to correctly talk to short people. Um, And I'm not sure if this like breached the Tumblr containment zone, but it's a dead funny meme about all the incorrect ways to talk to people who are short. And literally every single one of them is done in the, these films in particular. And the whole like getting down on your knee to talk to short people is one of the ones that's in the meme. Um, And sitting here listening to this, I'm like, Oh my God, I am going to go create the ultimate piece of horrible shitty viral content thanks to this so uh, yeah that's that's my contribution to this section <laughs> yes please follow emily at at jrr tweeting you'll find all sorts of horrible brain poison content <laughs> as such classic um speaking of brain poison content uh here's gonna be me complaining about costumes uh because i love nothing more than complaining um <clears throat> i'm gonna try and not get too intense about my dislike of the women's costumes in these films, but I feel like I need to like lay out my, my gripe uh, before we come back to in depth uh, a million episodes from now. And um, I hate Gladriel's costume in this. <laughs> I hate it. Um, I think it's really bad. Um, I think all of the women's costumes in the films are like quite poor, not just they're, they're like perfectly 
fine in terms of their actual design. I think like they're just boring. Um, I think there's like not really any like particularly insightful thought that went into them. I think they were like, well, women in the medieval age looked like this. And so we're all gonna, we're gonna have all of them look like that. It's, it doesn't even have the balls to do like the, the weird kind of, um, head covering silhouettes that they do in Braveheart, um, or like the super high necks, except for that one bit of Aon and two towers. Um, Anyways, sorry. So, so cycling back, um, these, these women's costumes all kind of fulfill the requirements, but they don't really do any more than that. And I think that is kind of like a not great, um, approach to costuming in general. Galadriel's dress here, like has the vibes of a dress that theoretically could be pretty, but just ends up falling down at various points. To me, it kind of looks like that shitty party city spider web you get, you know, like the stuff where like you're trying to put it down, like over the snack table or whatever, and it keeps getting like stuck in your fingers. And you're like, why did I spend the dollar on this instead of getting like the $5 version? Why have I condemned myself? Um, Gladriel's dress is that. Um, I, okay. <laughs> so I'm obviously not a costume designer. And, uh, for those who have seen me in public, I'm not much of a fashion person generally, but like since the, uh, $2 billion, uh, rights to, uh, the Lord of the Rings films are, uh, for auction right now, I'm going to put my pitch forward about what I would do if I had control over these. And here's the thing. It's really simple to have a diverse array of women's costumes in a quote unquote period slash fantasy piece. It just requires thinking outside the box slightly, not a huge thinking outside of the box. Cause I will note these are all basically white people cultures that I'm drawing from here. So it really wouldn't have killed them, but it just requires that you get beyond the stupid, boring Anglo-Saxon garbage. So here's what I would have done. The Rivendell elves, AKA Arwen should have been dressed in Roman inspired clothing. The Lothlorien elves, Galadriel should have been in Greek-inspired clothing. The Rohir women, which is Aon, should have been in the Anglo-Saxon bullshit we see. And then the Gondorim women, which is really only Aon and Arwen at the coronation, should be in Byzantine-inspired clothing. And and for the people who have no idea what that means and think that I'm just rambling nonsense, you are correct. I am rambling nonsense, but there's also definitions to this stuff. So Galadriel's Greek-inspired gowns would be gowns made of like a single piece of rectangular cloth belted at the hips and the upper waist, and then covered in a mantle draped around one shoulder on the oppo- and then the opposing forearm. Arwen's Roman-inspired would be a short-sleeved gown with slightly more like form-fitting alterations in the actual bodice of the gown, and then basically created of many, 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 many yards of fabric. So you get that beautiful kind of draping. Um, and then that would be belted around the waist. The reason why I've gone with these classical civilizations for Arwen and uh, Gladriel, but not the same classical civilizations is because I think that represents the distance between the like present in the films that the elves are. So like Galadriel is part of the high elves. She's part of the, the, the high elves of Noldor. She's, she's some of the, one of the oldest beings in middle earth. So she has that Greek inspiration. That is the distance, the, the, the aesthetic and, and like chronological distance between Galadriel and the present. Arwen is the next generation. Well, she's actually the second generation after Galadriel. Um, so she's not totally out of the woods of kind of being part of this like ancient and distant civilization, but she's also noticeably newer. And that is essentially the relationship of Rome to Greece. Rome Rome is uh, a far more recent civilization. It takes um, the aesthetics of Greece um, and, and modifies them and changes them and uh, modernizes, I guess, uh, what they are, but they are obviously tethered together um, and 
not only are they obviously tethered together, they are more closely tethered together for how distant and like chronologically foreign they are to us. Then you get the Anglo-Saxon influences for the Rohirrim. Uh, this is basically just because uh, Tolkien based uh, the uh, Rohirrim culture on, um, well, essentially on Beowulf, on, on the Danes and the Anglo-Saxons. Um, and that's really just the the kind of boring silhouettes that you see um, all the way through um, these films on the women anyways. Although when we get to Eowyn uh, in many, many podcast episodes from now, I will talk about why I think they were kind of bad to choose the silhouettes that they did instead of some of the more interesting ones. And then uh, my kind of wild card here, which is the Byzantine inspiration for Gondor, is because, uh, as I mentioned before, I think most recently in the episode where we talked about the Northern Kingdom, which is, I think, like episode seven, um, Gondor is to uh, Numenor um, and and to the the uh, kingdom of the Dúnedain as held by Elendil, Isildur, and Anarion what Byzantium was to the Western Roman Empire, which is to say it sees itself as a natural continuation and and does not actually see itself as a breach of the legacy of Rome. Um, That said, there are obvious and palpable differences between the art and culture of Byzantium, the Eastern Roman Empire, and the Western Roman Empire. So they would not necessarily look exactly like what the elves of Rivendell would be wearing, but they would be obviously inspired by that. And so the the way that you kind of evoke that sort of Byzantine element is that you would have the richer colors and richer fabrics. You would have more jewelry, thicker girdles, nice waist braces, circlets, bangles, armbands, a, a more significant influence of like high drama color. Um, not just as a way of being like, uh, you know, obviously we've got a better access, better access to trade because that's not necessarily something that comes into play as such in, in Middle Earth, but as a way of saying this is a more youthful cu- culture, this is a more bright and 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 not garish, but bright and in your face and and loud culture than uh, the elves who are kind of quiet and fading. Um, that um, I think basically covers my my complaints and my uh, coulda woulda shouldas for the women's costuming. But uh, to like sum up here, I really just think that they totally missed a trick with putting everybody in these same kind of uh, party city, uh, you know, generic medieval woman costumes. Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that. I definitely don't have a good eye for costuming. Like, I can tell when they do, like, neat things. Like, oh, here's a sigil buried in someone's collar or something. Um, but I'm not good at this. So you can just pretty much take Emily's takes as fully endorsed by me. Um, I know I'm probably stepping into it with that. But um, <laughs> she has my full vote of confidence on all costuming takes. I'm going to cut the all costuming takes element from that clip and reuse that constantly, really. <laughs> So we can transition into our token Tolkien book section, which I think will be a little abbreviated this time around. Uh, the first thing I wanted to talk about was that Frodo does see additional visions uh, when he looks into the mirror of Galadriel. And the, I think the most prominent one is that he does see um, a white wizard. Um, he's unsure who it is, um, whether it's Saruman or not, but uh, he, he does, you know, see, you know, kind of a foreshadowing for the arrival of Gandalf the White, which will come in um, the Two Towers. 
Um, and here, I just want to take a moment to uh, promote once again my favorite game ever right now, which is the Lord of the Rings Online, which does a really um, sensitively handled and um, interesting uh, take on how exactly it is that Gandalf gets from, uh, well, from Gwaihir's shoulders, from uh, the uh, very f- uh, highest tip of Caradhras to Lothlorien, where he heals before going to catch up with the three hunters. Um, and it is uh, a really lovely piece of storytelling. I think really does uh, a lot of justice to uh, the the source material, and is also quite fun to play through. Um, you get to spend a lot of time uh, messing around in uh, Galadriel's <laughs> garden, which is a lot of fun. Um, so if uh, you have not yet downloaded Lord of the Rings online, you absolutely should uh, just for that bit because it is well worth it. Sam, too, in the books, gets to glance in the mirror, and he really just wants to get a glance back of what's going on back home in the Shire. Um, perhaps the more relevant part for the story that is being told is that we also get a little foreshadowing here as he sees a winding stair that he is un- unable to place. This will be the stair that uh, Gollum leads them up into the cave of Shelob and later on through to Kirith Ungol. And I guess we need to talk about Galadriel having her own ring of power, and I will refrain from making the same joke that Emily did last last week when she said it was Nenya business. Um, that's right. It's the ring of adamant or the ring of water known as Nenya. What do we know about it, Emily? Yeah, uh, well, not a huge amount. Um, the rings tend to be you know, fairly cut and dry, I guess. Um, it's it's more the the uh, political and social context around them that is significant, but we know that it's made of mithril and set with a diamond, which is called an adamant in, uh, in Middle-earth. Um, we know that it was made by Calibrimber, um, and we know that Calibrimber gave it to Galadriel after he came seeking advice, after he realized that he'd done fucked up real bad. Um, and uh, this moment of Calibrimber giving the ring to Gladriel is really significant, not least because of all the pain uh, that Calibrimber's grandfather Feanor caused to uh, Galadriel's family in particular, but also because it is a recognition that she is among the the most important, most significant, wisest, fairest, yada 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 of all of the elves, um, and it begins to place her in kind of the upper echelon of the, the political spheres of uh, Middle-earth. Um, in terms of its actual powers, um, again, these are like quite vague, but we know in a couple words what they are, which is like it's got the power of preservation, protection, and concealment from evil, <laughs> which is great because it's everything that the Silmarils were not. Um, so ha, suck it, Feanor. Um, but it's also um, effectively what Lothlorien becomes. So <clears throat> while uh, Elrond's ring is uh, helpful for um, healing and Rivendell becomes a place of healing and of, of, of harmony and, and resuscitation, um, Lothlorien, which has uh, protection and preservation powers um, via Nenya, um, is really this like this physical embodiment of of the ring. Um, and so, in in many ways, Galadriel becomes the city that she protects. And you mentioned one of its powers is concealment. Uh, the ring isn't actually visible until kind of Galadriel drops her guard down after Frodo looks into the mirror, and then he realizes that she too is a ring bearer. Um, but it is meant to be a secret. I think later on, when they're further down river, Aragorn chastises Frodo when he mentions that Galadriel is the holder of the ring of adamant. Yeah, that shit gets you killed. 
Uh, speaking of the river, just one thing I noted from the books is that Mary, as most brandy books are, has an affinity for boats. Uh, living on the brandy wine, um, the brandy bucks, and I assume their kin are much more water-faring folk than just about every other hobbit, at least in the Shire. I know the people from whom Gollum or Schmeagol, dis- Schmeagol, uh, Schmeagol <laughs> descended from, <laughs> from uh, what's it called? Uh, they were also like, they lived off the great river, I believe. So they might've also been waterfaring as we see them, um, on a boat at the beginning of return of the King as well. Yep. They're the river hobbits. And, um, again, to reference Lord of the Rings online, one of the weirdest casting choices for voice actors, but something that does crack me up a lot is, um, they chose to go with like Invernesian accent. So like the accent of people from Inverness, uh, for the river, river hobbits for Gollum's people, which, uh, I was, I, I like first interacted with them for the first time like quite late at night uh, after a long day at work and i like actually felt like i got hit by a freight train to the chest when i heard them start speaking and uh it it truly wiped me out for a while um but to (laughs) return to the topic at hand which is the boats um this is also one of the moments in the books where uh sam starts to freak out about the fact that he's on a boat um he does not like water he is in every way the opposite of mary he is a he is a man of the land a man of the earth um and is deathly afraid of water which is obviously setting up for this fact that he is willing to follow frodo into the water to follow him wherever um and so this ongoing anxiety that sam has about the the boats and the water um starts to build here and it's really like emotionally effective yeah and that actually goes hand in hand with galadriel's gifts which we would probably cover more in full if we hit the patreon call at patreon.com slash nuclear bomb to get into the extended edition and the book stuff but one of the gifts that uh, galadriel does give sam is a little bit of dirt from her garden i think i have that right um which again ties into sam being kind of more of a land lover uh for lack of a better term yeah <laughs> Um, I think this is one of these lovely sort of elements about Sam is that like for as much as he loves and reveres the elves and the elves are of course like intimately connected to the sea and their sea longing. Um, Sam maintains this kind of uh, like humility, this this deep connection to the earth. Um, he is a gardener through and through, and um, Tolkien is essentially through through Sam making an argument about uh, what that connection to the earth and what that stewardship of the earth and love of the earth can can do for you when you are that closely connected to nature um and you know it, this isn't a knock on mary for 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 being a an old mariner oh my god we need to cut in in the navy for for mary anyways um like but you know sam is so closely associated with the earth and with the land and, and that's part of that theme there oh when we do the extended edition of this podcast we'll cut that in for the what's a buckleberry fairy scene uh they all jump on and then we'll play in the navy <laughs> Uh, one of Galadriel's gifts that we do want to focus on and we can kind of, you know, kind of wrap up our episode is the gift Galadriel gives to Gimli, which I'm just going to read a little bit out of uh, the book here and then we can talk about it. There is nothing, Lady Galadriel, said Gimli, bowing low and stammering. Nothing unless it might be, unless it is permitted to ask, nay, to name a single strand of your hair, which surpasses the gold of the earth as the stars surpass the gems of the mine. I do not ask for such a gift, but you commanded me to name my desire. The elves stirred and murmured with astonishment, and Celeborn gazed at the dwarf in wonder, but the lady (laughs) smiled. It is said that the skill of the dwarves is in their hands rather than in their tongues, she said, yet yet that is not true of Gimli. 
for none has ever made to me a request so bold and yet so courteous. And how shall I refuse, since I commanded him to speak? But tell me, what would you do with such a gift? Um, I assume he puts it in his little album and faps to it no. every now and then. Oh, no. Um, okay, I'll, I'll edit that out, maybe. We'll see. I'll surprise Emily with whether I edit that out. Um, but yeah, I think this is of Galadriel's gifts outside of the light of Arendil, um, the one that kind of people think about the most uh, because it is kind of a big turning point for Gimli, at least in terms of how what he thinks about the elves and all that. Yes, and importantly, is Gladriel getting to do a nice old uh, retrospective fuck you to Feanor, because as uh, we talked about in our last episode, Feanor came to Gladriel and asked three times for uh, a strand of hair and was rejected each time. Um, Gimli, thousands of years later, asks for one strand of hair and Galadriel gives him three, <laughs> which is, it just rocks. But I also think it's one of these like really lovely kind of, um, the signs of, uh, <clears throat> of, of character growth in Galadriel and that she's like learned that maybe she doesn't need to be such a hard ass all the time, but it's also an element of like, um, she recognizes in uh, the kind of change of the like attitude of the dwarves who, you know, as we've talked about uh, extensively in, in the Gimli episode, are now coming to appreciate things that are beautiful, that are not just created things, crafted things, contrived things that are not of the earth. Um, and, and I love this interaction, just love it to death. Yeah, now having the context from the last episode, I view her willingly giving up three strands of hair as a big fuck you. Um, so that kind of rocks. <laughs> And I also kind of enjoyed in the books at this point. So it kind of makes it seem like in the films that they just basically, there's a dock at Lothlorien and then, you know, Galadriel says goodbye to them there and gives them gifts. Um, but they actually kind of go down river a little bit. And then Galadriel and Celeborn meet, uh, the fellowship on their own, uh, kind of boat of sorts. And they have, you know, kind of brunch laid out for them. And then, uh, I guess Galadriel does like open mic night uh, with song and harp. She, I think she sings a song just fully in Quenya, but maybe it's Cinderin. I do know it's not a language I understand, uh, but I just think it's kind of funny that she just kind of like sends them off with the song. Um, very, very cute, if nothing else. It's very on brand for Tolkien, I think. And I, and I like this kind of, um, the, the nice pause. You know what it is? And the, the first time I ever started clocking this was in a, a comment made by Miyazaki on his films where, where he talks about how there's this importance of like um, stopping all of the action and taking a breath and watching the flowers blow in the breeze or well, animating the flowers blowing in the breeze or, or animating the clouds moving and how significant that is to having a, a like a story that people can connect to and having a story that feels full and 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 special and important and i think that moment with galadriel is that deep breath that's stopping to smell the roses that watching the clouds go by um and is i think for me one of one of the high points of this story yeah no i totally agree and i really love that you pulled that miyazaki quote because I feel like too often the discourse, especially around film, is just like, oh, nothing specifically plot important happens in this moment, so it can be cut. Um, a lot of people are against films lingering where I'm like, I, I love vibes. I love just kind of <laughs> sitting there and taking a breath and enjoying it. And of course, you know, things can be executed well and poorly and there can be actual filler. But um, I feel like sometimes the sitting there and watching the grass grow or the clouds move would get decried as filler or not plot important and thus should be cut. Um, the way we talk about movies these days. 
Boy, am I really going to end the episode on that note? Goddamn. Goddamn it. Oh, well. Anyways, that closes the book on this chapter of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash manuclearbomb, which goes towards this and all the other projects I've been working on. Which Manuclear Bomb? Hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Science Frontiers. And I've been Emily, and you can find me over at JRR Tweeting on Twitter, where I am plotting how to steal Galadriel's hair. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical, on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. During the War of Wrath, which saw the Valar, the Elves, and the Men of Numenor form an alliance to fight Sauron, the easternmost part of Middle-earth, a region known as Beleriand, oh, fucking hell, sorry, um, <laughs> hang on, I gotta go back and redo that, it's not Sauron, they fight, they fight Morgoth, um, my honor as a Tolkien snob is uh, at risk here. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, aka Stephen Boyd. Wait, sorry, let me screw that up. <laughs> T- toast. <blah. laughs>